Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Julian Archer. Let's bow our heads and do the most important part of the morning. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning, humbled by your awesomeness, Lord, humbled by this new day and grateful for your patience, grateful that you've given us another day, another day to work for you, another day to serve you, another day to share you, and another day to come closer to you. Lord, we thank you for the gift of this day. And Father, as we meet here this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit will be in this place, in each of our hearts, Lord, in this tent, in this campground. May your Holy Spirit come here to prompt and guide and plant seeds in us. Lord, I pray that all glory will be to you, that every word I speak will come from you. May I just be a channel for your message this morning is my prayer. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, just a brief reminder. And for those of you who have been coming every day, I apologise that I do a bit of a brief reminder. And then uh, tomorrow I'm going to actually rehash a little bit of Monday's testimony. So if, if uh, you're here for that, apologies in advance. But some people have only been able to make certain meetings. Um, so this morning's session is called Manure in My Wallet. Manure in My Wallet. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, I, I could tell by the tone of the mmm who that was. <laughs> okay, this is what we've been looking at as a reminder. We've basically been going through this all week from all different angles. A quote by John Wesley. Wherever true Christianity spreads, it must cause diligence and frugality, which in the natural course of things must beget riches, and riches naturally beget pride, love of the world, and every temper that is destructive of Christianity. A powerful, powerful statement from John Wesley. We're going to go straight to a video called Sky Banking. Hi, I'm Arch, and I don't have one cent in Swiss bank accounts. A few years ago, I was going to open a bank account right here in Zurich and put quite a lump in, but I didn't. You want to know why? Well, let me tell you a story about two men who lived on the same street. One was a rich man, and he lived in a huge mansion with all the latest furnishings. The other man was relatively poor and lived just a few doors up in quite a humble little home. Well, as happens to all of us, both men died. And so the story goes, they went straight to heaven and St Peter was there waiting at the gates and he said, welcome gentlemen, come on in and let me take you to your eternal homes, the places that you're going to live in forever. The men were pretty excited and so they headed off with St Peter into town and as they walked up the street, they came across this massive mansion. It was just huge. And St Peter turned to the poor man and said, this is your home for eternity. Well, the man was just shocked. He didn't know what to say. So he just said, thank you, and went on inside, pushed the door anyway. Meanwhile, St Peter and the rich man continued up the street a couple of doors and came across quite a humble little home. And St Peter said to him, well, this is going to be your home for eternity. Well, shocked and totally offended, the rich man said to St Peter, there must have been a mistake. This home is the one for the poor man. The big home is for me. Well, Peter, who was quite accustomed to this reaction, 
calmly said, well, no, there's been no mistake. You see, what happened is that when you were down on Earth, the poor man, as you call him, was actually sending all of his money to heaven. He was giving to people in need and to charities and church projects. And we used the money to put his home together for him. But if you remember correctly, you didn't send much. And what you did send, you sent pretty begrudgingly. And well, to be honest, this is all we could put together with what you sent. And sorry, but this is how it is. You know, Proverbs 19 verse 17 says, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them for what they've done. Now, I'm not sure about all the theology in that story, but the message in the Bible is clear. And that is that we are blessed to be a blessing. We're not blessed so that we can hoard it up and spend it all on ourselves. We're blessed so that we can pass it on to others in need. We each need to open a bank account, not here in Zurich, but in heaven. And we do that by opening our heart's door to Jesus, letting him in. And then we each need to deposit as much treasure as we can into that account. How's your heavenly home progressing? Today afternoon, one of the questions was, it was something to do with our journey, where Melinda and I are at at the moment on our, on our journey. And I mentioned that we're going along a road towards poverty. The road towards poverty. Having watched that video, are Melinda and I going along a road towards poverty? Or are we going along a road towards eternal joy and eternal treasures? In Matthew 6, 19 to 21, we've already had a, uh, a quick look at this a couple of days ago. Jesus tells us, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I won't, be, I won't go through all the verses in the Bible that support that statement, but there is text after text and parable after parable talking about literally laying up treasure for yourself in heaven. Is that selfish? I don't know. But the fact is that we can lay up treasure for ourselves in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. <clears throat> We've got to send it on ahead. Some of you may have heard of a guy called Genghis Khan. I think I might have a picture of him here. A bit of a stone-faced character. He uh, ruled the largest world empire. Geographically, I believe it's the largest geographical land empire in history. And Genghis was very well known for his ability to form smaller armies that were like scouting parties and shoot them off in all directions across Asia and towards Europe simultaneously. And then they would send reports back of what they found, how much treasure there is, how many people there are, and then he could work out where to take his major army. Well, one of his generals was shooting across towards the Baltic Sea, so heading west across Asia towards Europe. And as they were going along, they were you know, pillaging and, and stealing treasures from towns and cities and, and just putting it all on board and heading west and sending reports of the good news back to Genghis. And as they came through an area near the Baltic, they met the Turks coming the other way. And they realised that they had met their match. 
The Turks were just as ferocious, just as battle-hard, just as wise in, in battle as they were. What are we going to do? And they thought, we're going to have to surrender. So what's the best way to do that? We read a similar story in the Bible. They gathered up all the treasures, all the gold, everything that they had accumulated, and they put it on the carts and all the rest, and they sent it on ahead to the Turks, to the front line of the Turks, as a gift. Sorry, thank you. Here, peace, all yours, thank you. And the Turks, who were very fleet-footed and, and moving quickly, came th across this and said, fantastic, what a gift. And they took all the treasure and they turned around and they started heading for home because that was what they were going to be giving back and they were going to have you know, enough for years because of what they'd been given by these other guys. Genghis's men were now unburdened, fleet-footed, re-energised, and the enemy had all their stuff. While the Turks were cashed up and burdened down. And you know exactly what Genghis's men did. They chased after them, hit them from behind, killed them all, stole all the stuff, and kept going towards Turkey. They sent it on ahead. Because when we send it on ahead, it lightens us. It simplifies our lives. And all those things that we thought we owned, but we're actually owning us, are separated from us. And we can focus. Focus a lot better on the eternal important things, eternally important things. You can only take with you what you have given away. There's no drawers on a coffin. There's no pockets on a shroud. You can only take with you what you have given away. Yesterday I promised that we would look at a few things this morning. We would look at retirement, planning for retirement. We would look at children, raising godly children in, in a materialistic world. And we would look at inheritances. And here's my warning. Personal beliefs ahead. There'll be some scripture in it. There'll be some wisdom from other people in it. But these are my thoughts, okay? Sort the wheat from the chaff, blow the rubbish away. But this is where I'm at, and this is my thoughts. So take that up front. Keep it in mind. I want to tell you a story about a fellow by the name of David Busso. David's an Australian, lives in Sydney. Uh, he's an Anglican. And a number of years ago, David came to visit us. And he told us his story... Um, and this is, in a very condensed version, this is how it happens. David grew up in a, a uh, I guess you would call it a boys' home or an orphanage in New Zealand and started early in life. I think he was selling hot dogs or something like that on the side of the road. Got into business, moved across to Sydney where he got into building and was a builder for some of the big names uh, I think it was like the Packers and the Murdochs and some of those people building homes and things for them uh, quite a number of years ago. David got into his mid-30s and he realised that he had enough. He had enough stress. He had enough hassles. But he also had enough to retire. 
and he had to make a decision. What am I going to do with my life? It was 1973, I think, about that time. Cyclone Tracy hit in 1974 and David moved his family and his building teams to Toowoomba. It's to Toowoomba. That was the floods, 2011 floods. Cyclone Tracy was 1974. Uh, and he moved his team to Darwin and they did a lot of rebuilding work for the government and also voluntarily and just trying to help rebuild Darwin. While he was there, they went across to Bali and he, while the family was there, they came across a guy who needed a small loan for something. I forget what it was, a sewing machine or something like that. And they gave him 50 bucks. And they watched what that guy did with that 50 bucks. And they went, that is really cool. That is really cool. And so they gave some more. In fact, they loaned it. And it was paid back quickly. And they loaned some more. And it was paid back quickly. And they loaned some more. And it was paid back quickly. And when it was, whenever it was paid back, they could loan it to another person. And this went on and on and on. Today, we call it microfinance. Back then, it was something that David and his family were doing in Bali. Another guy by the name of Grameen was doing it in another part of the world. Long story short, about three years ago, the World Bank published a statement saying that the principles that David Basso planted as a seed in the mid-70s, by 2020, will have reduced world poverty by 10%. A guy who decided to go from success to satisfaction. A guy who decided that there was more to life than getting more. And David taught my family a thing called the economics of enough. Enough stress, enough hassles, and enough to survive. Now that doesn't mean that you can keep living the same lifestyle that you lived while you were in business. It means it's time to cut back and cut back and cut back. I can tell you five years ago, I didn't really know what a Vinnie's was. I, didn't, I, I knew Adra ran these op shops and things because I'd been involved with Adra, but I'd never actually bought anything there. I didn't need to. I could afford to buy anything I wanted, anywhere I wanted, anywhere in the world. What was that word I used? I could afford. John Wesley. You know what he said about that word? He said... In the entire English language, the word that is more devil-possessed and diabolical and hateful towards God than any other word is the word afford. He was the guy, remember, who said Christians should work as hard as they can to earn as much as they can in order that they can save as much as they can, to, so spend as little as they can. Yep. And... The word afford, but I can afford it, Julian. Julian, you can afford it and you deserve it. Does that come out of the Bible? Or does that come out of the ads at the airport? You deserve it. David taught us a lot of things. I should carry on with the story and just say that just about everything we get these days is from Vinnie's or the Adra Op Shop or whatever. And uh, they tell me it's also good for the environment. So uh, that's, that's good. Re reusing stuff. Retirement planning. Retirement planning. As I look out here this morning, I see a lot of people who are planning to retire or have retired. Warning, personal beliefs ahead. Matthew 5.25, therefore, where does this fit? This fits immediately after the text that says, 
you cannot serve God and money. It comes immediately after the, the passage that talks about uh, don't, don't be a cross-eyed Christian. Don't have one eye on your heavenly treasures and one eye on your earthly treasures. That's prior to this. And then, then it says, therefore. In light of all what I've just told you, therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life. Do not, therefore again, a little bit further on, therefore, do not worry saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But, and here's the do, seek first, and that doesn't just mean first thing in the morning, before you go to work. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Remember what Soren Kierkegaard said yesterday? We Christians are scheming swindlers because we know that the Bible is extremely plain in what it says, but we twist it to suit our own situation, our own lifestyle, because we know that if we read it and acted as written, it would require a major change in our lives. Should the retirement nest egg or the retirement fund of a Christian be any bigger or smaller than that of a Gentile, than that of a non-believer? Should the retirement fund of a Christian be any bigger or smaller than that of a person who doesn't know God. Where in the Bible are we encouraged to, to retire? Somebody give me a verse. It's got to be one. I retired a few years ago. I was in my 30s. I retired. Which verse was it? I don't know of one. I don't know where the disciples went into their retirement plan. Melinda told me this morning that John retired on an island in the Mediterranean. <laughs> in, my, in my goals, being a business person, I have one year, three year, five year, ten year goals. And about ten years ago, I had a ten year goal to buy Melinda an island. And a few times I've been tempted. But we've changed our plans. I don't really want to retire on an island in the Mediterranean the way John did, but I can't find too much about retirement in the Bible. Just got something on a, just want to read off here. Why is the retirement age 65 in most developed countries? <laughs> ah, scholar. Because <laughs> we only live to about 62. Here's a hint. The retirement age of 65 was first elected in 1880 by the Ein Chancellor of Germany, Otto von Bismarck. Because hardly anyone lived that long. The age of 65 was originally selected as the time for retirement by Otto von Bismarck of Germany when he introduced a social security system to appeal to the German working class and combat the power of the Socialist Party in Germany during the late 1800s. One thing he was finding was that the older these guys got, those who lived past 60 had so much wisdom and so much experience and so many connections and relationships and so much power that he was worried about his position as the Iron Chancellor. So he said, nah, that's it. 
I'm going to cut off these networks, I'm going to cut off employment at that age. Somewhat cynically, Bismarck knew that the program would cost little because the average German worker never reached 65. And many of those who did lived only a few years beyond that age. When the United States finally passed the social security law in 1935, more than 55 years after the conservative German chancellor put it in Germany, the average life expectancy in America was 61.7 years. So why do we retire at 65? Our common answer is we're ready for a break. We have a question over here. Retire at 50. Okay. Can you, can you go back behind that and can you read around the context of it and see why they retired at 50? Well, come, up, come later on and we'll discuss it. The priests retired at 50 from their role. But the fact that most of us can now think about being retired for 15 years or so is completely an accident. The original idea is that we retired at 65 because no one was supposed to live past that age. Things have changed. In some ways, we're now forced to retire at 65. Our employers might say, well, that's it, you're 65. And then what do you do? And then what do you do? I want to encourage you to think about this text, the do not worry texts, and to think about Jesus. Think about who he was, who he is, what he's doing for us today, and what he's going to be doing for us very soon. And then respond to him accordingly. In faith, not finance. The combined wisdom and experience in this tent today is huge. Don't retire it. Don't retire it. Use it for God. Parallel of the talents we looked at yesterday, the servant who gave five talents or two talents, you know, earned five or ten more. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Could it be that the reward for good work is more work, not retirement? Could it be that the reward for good work is more work, not retirement? I encourage you, instead of retiring, retread. Not retire, retread. It's an opportunity that you've longed for all of your working life, <coughs> excuse me, to have enough time, more time, to do things for God. Take that opportunity. It's a gift. A gift from God given to an affluent society. You know, most of the world, most people in the world don't retire. It's a luxury for us rich people. An absolute luxury for us rich people. And here in Australia, it's such a luxury that even if you can't afford to retire, there's that word, if you can't afford to retire, the government will support you. I recently was rung up by a lady who was retired, living on her own, living in government housing, basically had no investments or other assets and surviving on a single pension here in Australia. She said, Julian, I just want to talk to you. Can you come and visit me? My first response, Lord, do I have to? But, I, but I've read your book and I want to share it with you. I want to share something about it that I've read. And I thought, oh, here I go. I'm in for grilling. <laughs> I'm in trouble now. Lord, do I have to? I said, I'll get back to you. And it plagued me. 
for probably a week. Julian, go and visit that lady. Go and visit that lady. So I rang her up. When can I come around? Oh, any time. <laughs> so around I went. Into this little government housing commission unit. Sat down on the second-hand furniture. Was offered a glass of fruit juice to put on my doily on the coffee table. And she shared with me something. She said, Julian, I want to give you my story. And she went back through her whole story. And she said, I've been paying tithe faithfully all of my life. And I've had some problems. She's, and she went through some of her problems that she'd had, significant problems. But she said, a few years ago, I was convicted that I should be paying a second tithe out of my pension. I went, oh, okay. And she said, and, and I was able to do that. And I put my second tithe into all these wonderful projects. And she went through some of these projects, many of which I knew, but then she said, oh, did you know? And I'd say, yeah, I know about that project. And she'd go, oh, we're working on it together. Isn't it wonderful, you know, being partners with, for the Lord? Yep, yep. The widow's might. This is a lady who, when she gets her pension, she, she withdraws it as cash in small, in small denominations and so she can go home and put that for electricity and that for rates and, or whatever it is and you know, all the different things so that at the end of the month she's got enough to pay a bill. And she said, Julian, I asked you to come around here today because I just want to, I want to share with you something to encourage you because I've read your book and it's convicted me to pay a third tithe. <laughs> oh, Lord, you're killing me. And she explained how she was about halfway there. And the blessings, the list of blessings that she was seeing in her life and how the money was getting able to go further and all the rest and how she was now promising God that every, uh, I think it was every $1 coin that she got in change anywhere, that went straight to the third tithe. And, and, and people just giving me $1 coins in change all the time and, <laughs> and just went through this journey that she's on. And she said, you know, through this power of God, I'll be able to pay a third tithe very soon. We live in a blessed country. We live in a, in a blessed country. Plan to retread, not to retire. Put new tyres on and go for it. Race down the road, wherever it is that God is pointing you. And it may not be on a cruise. Raising godly children in a materialistic world. Raising godly children in a materialistic world. This is a challenge. I have a chapter in the book, Help, I've Got Kids Too. How do we raise godly children in a materialistic world? Warren Buffett, one of the richest men in the world, talks about his children who have been born into an affluent society, into a very wealthy family, as members of the Lucky Sperm Club. Members of the Lucky Sperm Club. It wasn't their fault wasn't something that they worked for. They were just born into it. And most of the world's children weren't born into it. Remember from yesterday? Should the camp cooks eat any better than the soldiers on the front line? Dr. Madeline Levine, I just want to share a little bit of research here with you. Dr. Madeline Levine has been a psychologist for 25 years. She works in Marin County, one of the richest counties in the United States. 
But it was only recently that she began to observe a new breed of unhappy teenager when a bright, personable 15-year-old girl from a loving and financially comfortable family came into her office with the word empty carved into her left forearm, Levine was startled. This girl and her message seemed to embody a disturbing pattern Levine had been observing. Her teenage patients were bright, socially skilled, and loved by their affluent parents. Bright, socially skilled, and loved by their affluent parents. But behind a veneer of achievement and charm, many of these teens suffered severe emotional problems. What was going on? Numerous studies show that privileged adolescents are experiencing epidemic rates of depression, anxiety disorders, and substance abuse, rates that are higher than those of any other socioeconomic group of young people in the United States. Higher depression, anxiety disorders and substance abuse than any other socioeconomic group in the United States. Does living in an affluent society affect our kids? Does being raised in an affluent home affect our kids? Absolutely. Absolutely. Ellen White had this to say. I apologise for the long quotes, but <clears throat> this is from Manuscript 58, 1899. <clears throat> the title of this as you'll see right down the bottom, is a mistake sometimes made by wealthy fathers. The circumstances in which a child is placed will often have a more effective influence on him than even the example of parents. There are wealthy men who expect their children to be what they were in their youth and blame the depravity of the age if they are not. But they have no right to expect this of their children unless they place them in circumstances similar to those in which they themselves have lived. The circumstances of the father's life have made him what he is. In his youth, he was pressed with poverty and had to work with diligence and perseverance. His character was moulded in the stern school of poverty. He was forced to be modest in his wants, active in his work, simple in his tastes. He had to put his faculties to work in order to obtain food and clothing. He had to practice economy. Fathers labour to place their children in a position of wealth rather than where they themselves began. This is a common mistake. Had children today to learn in the same school in which their fathers learned, they would become as useful as they. The fathers have altered the circumstances of their children. Poverty was the father's master. Abundance of means surrounds the son. All his wants are supplied. His father's character was moulded under the severe discipline of frugality. Even trifling good was appreciated. His son's habits and character will be formed not by the circumstances which once existed, but by the present situation, ease and indulgence. When luxury abounds on every side, how can it be denied him? Look at that first sentence. The circumstances in which a child is placed will often have a more effective influence on him than even the example of parents. That's a powerful, powerful statement. And for me... As an Australian parent, that's a scary statement. It's a scary statement. I'm going to share some things from the appendix of my book, which isn't in the book itself. There were, the appendices were quite long, and so we put them on the website. So if you want to get this, it's on the website, not in, not in the book itself. It's referred to very, very briefly in the book, but the full expanded version is, is only on the web. How to raise godly children in a materialistic society. I just want to run through a dozen things. I think it's quite clear to you, you guys know me well enough now, my, my boys are 14 and 16, I'm not out the end of the woods. I, I'm not out, out the far end of it. 
I just have to keep relying on God. But this is what we're doing. And if you have things that you can add to this, that you want to share with me, please come and see me after the meeting or email them to me or phone me or whatever, because I'm really learning in this game of parenting kids in an affluent society. Number one, pray. I said it a few days ago, prayer is the work. Pray, because all power comes from God. So pray. Pray for your kids. Pray that God will protect them. Pray that whole list of things that you know you need to pray for your kids. Family worship, I shared it briefly yesterday, how we each in the morning do our own reading, our own time with God, and then we come together as a family about half an hour before we leave to go to school, and we each share what we have read that morning. The kids get to share. They get to, to read it, digest it, to a point that they're able to share it and teach it. And we each have to come away with a, a take-home message, a message for today. So how is that what you've read this morning going to affect your life today. And it's a beautiful thing, a beautiful way of doing family worship. I encourage everybody to to give it a go. Being intentional, Deuteronomy 11, where it says, says, you know, talk to your children about how God has led you. Give your children your testimony about you or your parents or whatever your testimony is of how God has led in your family's life. Share that with your kids over and over and over. The Bible says share it to them when you sit down, when you stand up, when you're walking along the path, when they're going to sleep. Share what God has done for your family with your kids. Share what God has done for the human family. Pass on values. We're going to look a little, little bit more at this a little bit later on, but pass on values. What are those values that you learned as a child that you want to pass on to your kids, even though they may now be living in very different circumstances to what you were living in when you were a child? Quantity time. Quantity time. Some tell us what you need with your kids is quality time, doing quality things together. For those of you who have tried that, instead of quantity time, you'll know that it generally doesn't work. Quantity time with the kids. Limited screen time. Here's a challenge. It's a challenge for me. (laughs) My boys are often saying, Dad, get off your computer. I say, but I'm working. And I say, boys, get off the computer. But dad, you're on your computer. Okay. So you get off the computer, you pick up your phone. (laughs) Dad, get off the phone. Maybe you then pick up your iPad. Maybe you go and watch Kelly. Screen time, whatever it is. You know, are we raising teenagers or screenagers? I mean, if, if we go back a little bit, the word teenager didn't even exist. It didn't exist. By the time you got to 12 or 13, you were ready for, for manhood or womanhood. That's when all the, the bar mitzvahs and all that sort of stuff have happened for millennia. And then in the last 100 years, we decide we can retire and we can still be kids when we're adults. What a luxury. What a luxury for the rich. Choice of peers. I won't say much there other than choose the friends of your kids. Might sound like a bit of a dictator thing to do. Show me their friends and I'll show you their future. Choose the friends of your kids. Hang with the families that you want your kids to hang with. Choose the friends of your kids. Go on mission trips where you can. We all know the benefits of mission trips. One word of warning. 
when you go out to the mission field and you have a fantastic time building a school or digging toilets or teaching in classrooms or painting the walls of a hospital or whatever you're doing, get out there, rough it and enjoy it. But on your way home, don't stay in a five-star hotel the night before you come back to Australia. Otherwise, when you get home, you might say to your kids, so what was the best thing about that holiday? <laughs> oh, did you see that pool at that last place, Dad? <laughs> you can see I'm speaking from experience. <laughs> wisdom. Every family has its own wisdom. Wisdom comes from God. Wisdom comes from the Word. But share that with your kids. Find quotes and statements and things Stick them to the toilet wall in their toilet. That's what we've got. We've got this rotating little plastic sleeve on the boys' toilet wall and every so often I'll go in there and whack a new one in and put a new date on it and I'm collecting them all. I don't know what I'll do with them all one day. But share wisdom from God with your kids. The rule of tens, this is talking about money. It's an old Jewish tradition. Tell your kids when, when they get their pocket money or they get their wages or they get whatever, whatever income they receive, Christmas presents from Rellos, whatever. First 10% goes where? Tithe. Second 10% goes to gifts and donations for others. Third 10% goes to savings. The other 70% is still God's, but use it as you feel led by God to use it. The rule of tens, three tens. Tithe, gifts and donations, and savings. Mentored financial planning. My son Ethan, who's here this morning, just turned 16. And from his 16th birthday, we have increased his pocket money from $7.50 a week to $125 a week. It's a fair jump. Why have we done that? Every week, $125 is taken from Melinda's and my savings account and transferred across to a bank account that we set up for Ethan. That's, uh, what's that, 500 bucks a month. Not bad for a 16-year-old living at home. And then at the end of the month, what happens, Ethan? <laughs> yeah, he goes, uh, Dad turns up with the bills. And he, he pays a quarter of the electricity, a quarter of the internet. There's four in our house. What else do you pay a quarter of? We've only just started doing it. It's only in the last couple of months. Food, we couldn't do food. The food was a really tricky one, trying to keep all the receipts and everything else. So I just, we haven't budgeted food into that $125 that he gets because it was just going to get too messy. But anyway, there's a whole lot of different things. There's car regos, there's car insurances, there's house insurances, there's rates, a whole lot of things. And we sit down and we go through it. It's called mentored financial planning. It's all my money. It's actually all God's money. It's like God when he gives it to us. He says, I'm going to, but Julian, I'm going to, I'm going to give you this money, but I'm going to mentor you through. Read my word and mentor you through. Well, it's the same in the family. We give it to the children and then we mentor them through how it's to be carefully used. So that when they leave home, they have some idea about the three tens and about how to budget what's left. And there's enough there for savings and other things at the other end. So he's doing all right out of it. Abstinence. Very quickly, when our boys turn 18, if they haven't drunk alcohol at all, had sex at all, I guess there's, I'm from the olive oil industry, so there's virgins and extra virgins. Um, but <laughs> so if they haven't had sex at all, and if they haven't touched drugs at all, including caffeine, coke, and other things like that, 
then we're going to give them $1,000 to each of them at 18 for each one of those things that they have abided by. And when they get to 21, they get another $2,000 for each one of those things. In total, they can receive $9,000 if they don't do those things. And if you want to know where you're going to get $9,000 from, it's the money you've saved on smoking and drinking. It's your beer and cigarette money. Because if people out there on a pension or out on Centrelink can afford beer and cigarettes, and you've got a job, you can afford to save $9,000 over the first 18, 21 years of your child's life to reward them for these three things that are incredibly damaging in their life if they choose to go down those routes. Uh, where are we up to? Inheritances. We planned originally to uh, give a home to each of our boys at their, I don't know, 21st or at their wedding or something like that. We had, we had a number of homes around the place and we had, we'd, in our minds we had said that home in the country and that home in the, in the city, they're good, they're good gifts for our children. And what, what good parent doesn't want to give good gifts to their children? That was our plan. But things changed. Because when we look back on our lives, and as we studied God, God's word and, and looked at different things, looked at the spirit of prophecy, Melinda and I realized the character-building value of struggling through the early years of our marriage, struggling financially, living in our love shack on wheels for five years, <laughs> saving, scrimping. We realized how that helped us. And if we had just been given a house, bang, straight up, there it is, boys. We don't think we would have been able to learn those things. Personal belief, yes, but, sorry, boys. <laughs> it's okay, they've read the book. This isn't the first time they've heard it. I met a, uh, a young, I'm not so much a young guy, probably about my age, yeah, young guy, in, uh, in Sydney at a, at a meeting uh, third generation wealthy Christian. Grandfather had been into supermarkets, big in retail here in Australia. And I had a question for this young guy who was also wealthy and whose father was also wealthy. I said, is your money your money or is it family money? And he said, good question, Julian. And he had the answer already there. He said, my grandfather said this to my father, my father said this to me. There is no inheritance. My responsibility is to raise you and educate you to either the end of school or maybe the end of college or university, personal choice there, and then you're on your own. There's no inheritance. And this was the statement from the grandfather to the father to the son. If my children don't work as hard or as smart as I did, they don't deserve my money. And if they do work as hard and as smart as I did, they won't need my money. Andrew Carnegie, one of the richest men in the US, probably the best part of 100 years ago, I would as soon leave to my son a curse as the almighty dollar. It was the same guy who said it's harder to give money away wisely than it is to earn it in the first place. So true. I would as soon leave to my son a curse as the almighty dollar. What did Gates and Buffett say? It's accredited to both of them. They probably got together over a game of golf and shared this thought with each other. I want to give my children enough so that they can do anything they want, but not so much that they can do nothing. Wise words from a billionaire. We might not be in a position that we can give our kids enough so that they could actually do nothing, but they're very wise words. Enough so they can do anything they want. 1 Timothy 5.8, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So do we have responsibilities to our kids? Absolutely. Proverbs 13, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's 
children, grandchildren. There's a lot of wisdom in that. I won't go into it now, but if you're at a stage in life where you're looking at leaving an inheritance somewhere or something like that, study the commentaries on that, on that text. Go deep. There's a thing called economic outpatient care. That's where every year you give your, growing, your grown children who might have kids of their own and, and you know, starting a new family, every year you give them some money. It might be $1,000 a year, it might be $10,000 a year, it might be $100,000 a year. It's all relative, depending on where you're at. And you give them this every year or every couple of years or it might be set on every five years or whatever. And I just encourage you not to do that. The problem that occurs is that your kids start to rely on that and start to adjust their lifestyles according to that being part of their income. And if at any time it can't keep coming, they're in trouble. And it may be that the money that you're giving them (coughs) is money that they choose to spend on themselves rather than on God's things. And when I mean on themselves, I'm not talking about food and shelter and rent and all that sort of thing. I'm talking about maybe upping the holiday, making it a nicer holiday or whatever it is. Trying to avoid economic outpatient care. It's been said that the first generation makes the money, the second generation keeps the money and the third generation spends the money. First generation makes it, second generation keeps it, third generation spends it. So what is an inheritance? Is it only money? When we think about an inheritance, we think of wills. We think of assets. But is it only money? Jim Stovall, he wrote The Ultimate Gift. I think it is critical that people pass along their values before they pass along their valuables. Giving second or third generation family members resources without a mental, emotional and informational foundation is like giving them a loaded weapon without instruction or caution. Values before valuables. Ellen White has some other statements to say on how to assess whether your child is ready to receive an inheritance, uh, whether you should give more to one child who seems to be their character is better prepared to receive it than to another, or whether to give it all to God. There's, there's further advice out there. We just don't have time to go into it this morning. So we've looked at very quickly at retirement, raising mat- children in a materialistic world and inheritances. But how do we make the decisions about those things? How do we make the decisions of how much to give, when to give, where to give, when to retire, if to retire, how to retire, what to do when I retire. All those decisions. Melinda and I use these steps. It's from a guy called Dr. Viggo Olsen, who was a, a surgeon in Bangladesh many, many years ago, and he wrote a book called Daktar, D-A-K-T-A-R, Daktar, Diplomat in Bangladesh. This is what he did to make the big decisions in life. Number one, erase and pray. Erase from your mind. This is not about meditation and emptying your mind and all that sort of stuff. This is going, okay, well, let's, let's, let's have a scenario here. Well, let me, let me use a scenario that we had in our own life. We were trying to work out whether to go to Nepal or not to work with ADRA. And this was prior to us doing any work with ADRA, so we were still in business, and we wanted to go to Nepal to volunteer with ADRA. What, what better thing could God want us to do? We were in business, making money, getting busy, 
Let's go and volunteer. So what did we have to do first to, to work out whether God wanted us to do this? We had to arise and pray. We had to go, okay, Lord, we want to go to Nepal, but we're taking that right out of our mind and we want you to impress us with whether or not you want us to go to Nepal. It's about erasing all your preconceived plans and ideas, maybe even the things you've been looking forward to all your life when you retire. Erase all that and pray. Ask God what he wants. For Melinda and I, we, we do this separately. So we go apart. We don't do this together. We do it separately. Erase and pray. Then we come back together and we say, what has the Lord impressed on your heart? And we discuss that. And we might go apart again and come back and discuss and go apart again. Step number two, read and remember. There's a lot of stuff out there today about, if you want to know God's will, pray and listen. Pray and listen. I was doing a Bible study with a lady recently and she said, Julian, I just wish the Lord would send me a text message to the answer to this problem. And I said he did. 31,000 text messages. God's word is all there. His answers are all there. Don't just pray and wait in silence going, what's the answer, Lord, what's the answer? Open it up and look for the answer and dig and seek with all your heart and you will find the answer. Read and remember. Consider and think. Think about and consider the different options that have come to you during this time of communion with God. Well, it's this, that and the other thing. You might even want to put a columns. For us, we would like put a column down the middle and on this side, it's do we go to Nepal. On this side, it's don't go to Nepal. And we put pros and fours and cons all the way down. If that's still, you know, that, I mean, that's the, the message that we're getting through from God is to keep trying to decide on this. When we get to a point where we are comfortable with it, then we decide. This is what God's showing us. You know, at that time, the one I'm talking about, the, the decision was don't go to Nepal. We had no idea why God would not want us to go to Nepal at that time. It was just so against everything we had believed about going and working with Adra and helping people in need and what the Bible told us to do. No, God wanted us to stay in business. And soon thereafter, we went and volunteered for Nepal in Sydney while still doing business. And the business kept growing. And, and then we were asked, we put our, our CV out to the whole Adra's world and said, look, if there's a job, we want to come. We've done two years with Adra in Sydney. We want to come. And we said we'll go with the first one, the first country that calls. At 5 a.m. one morning, Washington, D.C., the Adra head office was on the line saying, we want you to go to Nepal as country director. Will you go? I'm like, whoa. At 6 o'clock that night, after we had said yes to Nepal, Madagascar rang up and said, we want you to come to Madagascar. Both places we would have loved to have gone, but God said Nepal. And away we went. So there's the steps that, that we use. Key deciding questions. I don't know what's on your mind this morning. I don't know what it is that you've been thinking about. Maybe something about retirement, a decision about an investment, a decision about a holiday, a decision about raising your kids, a decision about inheritances and how much you're going to leave, a decision about your will. I, I don't know what it is that's in your mind. But I encourage you to ask these four questions. Could I do this in Christ's name? Could I make the decision that I think at the moment is the right decision? Can I do it in Christ's name? Can I do it in the name of Jesus Christ? And if you've somewhat forgotten who Jesus Christ is and what he did for you, go back and read the Gospels and ask the question again. Can I do this in the name of Jesus Christ, my Saviour, who's coming again to take me 
to heaven for eternity. Second question, can I imagine Jesus doing this or deciding this way? Number three, will this action bring any glory to God? Will it bring glory to God or will it just bring glory to me? Only you know right down deep in your heart where the glory will be. And would I want to be found doing this when the Lord returns? Would I want to be found doing this when the Lord returns? That is a powerful question. You know, it was, it was Clint, Clinton Murchison Jr., Jr., founder of the Dallas Cowboys, a very wealthy man who said this, Money is like manure. Pile it up and it stinks. But spread it around and it does a lot of good. I've got manure in my wallet. What am I going to do with it? John Bunyan, a man there was, they called him mad. The more he gave, the more he had. I won't go into all the details of how Melinda and I have seen that happen in our lives, but just call us mad. <laughs> the more they gave, the more they had. Proverbs 11.24, same thing. One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. I'm just wondering, you guys have seen this probably in this tent last year or the year before, because the, the guy who gave me this idea was, was actually here in, in one of your tents a couple of years ago. But I'm just wondering whether the people sitting over around that side and around this side, and some of you in the front rows, could please go to the outside of the tent and pick up this white rope. If you could please do that, you'll see it goes right around to that back corner and it goes right across to the book poster over there. If you could please just pick it up and just hold it up above your head. Okay, thank you very much, strong-armed volunteers. Pastor Harold Harker. Could I have chosen a better man to be on that end of the rope? <laughs> this is a very simple illustration, guys. Pastor Harker is holding up the end of the rope. And on the end of that rope, it's a bit hard for you to see from over there, there's a piece of red tape. It's about an inch long, just wrapped around the end of the rope so it doesn't fray. These guys are all holding up a long, 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 long piece of white rope. The decisions that we make about retirement, inheritances, raising our children, and so many other aspects of our financial lives and, and other parts of our lives, all happen inside the red tape that Pastor Harker's holding up. Can anybody tell me, if that represents 70 years or 80 years, what does this represent? Eternity. Are we willing to make decisions inside that red tape that will steal all of this from us? Are we prepared to do that? What's your decision? What is it that the Holy Spirit has placed on your heart this morning or this week that is coming up every day and you're grappling with it? I just want to encourage you to look at it in perspective. In perspective, that the decision that you make Asking the questions that we had on the screen before, it's going to impact the rest of eternity. Are you a Christian atheist? Do you believe in God but trust in money? 
Or do you believe in God and trust in God? Do you believe it when he says, do not worry about tomorrow? And that he will provide if you just hold on to him. That he will give you your food and your clothing and what you need to drink. Do we believe that? Do we really, really, really believe that deep down in our hearts? Because if we do, we're going to, it's going to affect how we live inside that little tiny bit of red tape over that end. And it's going to affect all the rest of this beautiful promise that we've been given. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. Let's bow our heads, guys. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you for your Holy Spirit. I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for all those text messages that you are so you have blessed us with. Lord, I just want to pray that you will be with us as we make these decisions, as we go from this tent, as, as your Holy Spirit keeps touching our hearts and working on us. Lord, please be relentless. Please be the hound of heaven who hounds us and hounds us and hounds us until we finally fall on our face in tears and submit to you and the reality of the eternal gift you want to give us. Father, thank you for being here this morning and thank you for hearing our prayers. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 2 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3ABN that is radio at the number 3 ABN Australia, all one word, dot org dot au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc, PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.